you know, when I was growing up, you didn't necessarily ask questions then and there. Your whole job was to sit and listen that sometimes get lost in the non-Indigenous context. So I think the taking of time is important because you can't rush that. And it was always a good reminder for me of just how caught up I'd become in a Western style of storytelling that when I did spend two or three hours with someone, because it could take that long, and I might only use half an hour of that, I might only use an hour of that, that was all important because what you're also building is rapport, you're building trust, you're building a relationship, and that all takes time. Ben Hart, and welcome to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. I've been in the business of telling stories for more than two decades. As a journalist, communications advisor, and now heading up my own storytelling-led comms agency, Fireside. In this six-episode season of Storycraft, you'll hear from all sorts of storytellers who'll share what they've learned about making stories that simply worked. So whether you're in the story business, think storytelling might make you better at what you do, or you just love a good yarn, I promise you'll take something away from these conversations. Every country has a story it likes to tell about its origins, a combination of truth, myth and folklore. If you grew up in Australia in the 20th century, chances are the story you were told was the one seen through the eyes of the colonists, sailing the world in search of wild, uninhabited lands to settle and civilise. The story of Australia's First Nations people, who were dispossessed in the process of colonisation, remains absent from our constitution and is still often skated over in our classrooms, history books and by our media. This is despite the fact that Indigenous Australians have the oldest continuous culture on the planet. For 19 years... Rihanna Patrick was one of only a handful of Indigenous voices on the ABC's airwaves. Because of this, she felt a keen responsibility to tell the complex stories of her community with respect and care. Rihanna joined the ABC in the early 2000s as a cadet in the Sydney newsroom, before moving to work for the Triple J news team. From there, she worked on the ABC's Indigenous television program, Message Stick, and then returned to radio on Speaking Out, away and for the final years hosting her own self-titled program on Radio National. Telling the stories of Australia's Indigenous people was a job Rihanna loved, but it was never easy, especially working inside a media organisation built on a system of colonisation, still grappling with a culture of discrimination and racism. Rihanna was born in Brisbane, but spent her early years living in the small remote township of Weeper, Cape York, on the northern tip of Queensland. It was a childhood spent outdoors and adventuring and was one that prepared her to one day work in the media. I knew when I was six I was going to be a journalist and it was totally, I will say, largely in part due to Doctor Who and the fourth companion of the fourth, oh, well, the, the companion of the fourth Doctor. And Sarah Jane Smith was a journalist and I thought, well, that looks like a cool career. You get chased by mummies and you get to travel around in this blue box. Sure, why not? That looks exciting. And then when I got older, I guess because we only had the ABC, I became aware of just not really seeing people like myself on television or and that we'd sort of only really be on the news. And I grew up seeing my uncle on ABC News quite a bit. He was um, one of the big leaders in the Torres Strait at that time um, in a position of really – 
kind of driving, I guess, development in the Torres Strait. And so he was one of the few that I would see that looked like me. And I knew that we were related because my dad would be like, oh, you're related. Uh, and, and so as I got older, it became more obvious to me that it was more about giving a voice, being seen, being heard. And then when I moved to Brisbane, I didn't realise that I had another cousin who in Brisbane was a long-time police reporter for the ABC, for ABC Radio News here. And so I grew up as a teenager listening to his news reports and, you know, my dad saying, oh, you're related to him, and then later getting to work with him. And they were kind of, I guess, those moments that sort of solidified things for me that it, I, I could do it, that I knew other people who were doing it from my community but I guess at the time, I mean, you know, when I was a teenager in the 90s, there was a lot happening in the 90s. We had uh, the Mabo decision came down. We had WIC native title decision and then changes to native title. We had the formation of ATSIC, um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. We had, there was just a lot happening in Indigenous affairs at the time. And so I think that was quite formative as well in my teenage years when I knew that that's what I was going to go on and study, that I could really see there was this need because of the way my community was being reported on, the stories that would get exposure, but knowing that it was still very stereotypical, it was very much in the negative, and you never saw the positives in what was happening in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, and I think that really solidified knowing that that's what I really wanted to do when I went to university. Can you tell us a bit about your people and the way that um, the place of stories in in everyday life of a Torres Strait Islander, is it is it how different is it to other people's? What What's the role of stories in, in culture? Yeah, and I guess I'd start that by saying the Torres Strait is a body of water between the tip of Queensland and Papua New Guinea. A lot of people don't really know where it is. Uh, we're the second Indigenous group in Australia. So Australia is very unique in that it has two Indigenous groups that reside in this country. Storytelling was just something that I grew up with. It was never a moment where it was like, I'm going to tell you a story now. It would come up in conversation stories would just get told to me by my dad or by other people that I would be interacting with. And they would be stories about anything. So it could be stories that directly related to particular stories from the Torres Strait and what uh, I guess a Western context would term myths or legends. But these were, I guess, in a way, creation stories, I guess, in the way they were how islands were formed. They were how certain things came to be in the islands. And I grew up with all of those stories, which obviously are directly attached to culture too, in the stories that you're learning about. And in a way, you're learning about different cultural things too, as you hear these stories. But it wasn't the way that it is in a non-Indigenous context of, okay, let's read you a story. I'm going to tell you a story now. It was just naturally there. It was naturally in conversation. But I guess as I got older, I understood that there were certain stories that everyone would kind of tell, but then there were certain stories that only certain people could tell. And understanding that, um, I guess, in non-Indigenous culture, it's seen as though anybody can tell a story. But in Torres Strait Islander culture, there are protocols around, you know, what is your connection to that story? And then do you even have permission to tell that story? Or are you the right person to be able to tell that story? Or are you the person who is the person who should be telling that story? You have to get permission and even then you might not get permission to tell that story. And so understanding those different layers of who owns a story, who can tell a story, who has permission to tell a story, 
I think is not really understood by the wider community. Uh, and I think for us, you know, those stories are so embedded to it's not just orally sitting down and having those um, those conversations or, or hearing that, but it's in songs, it's in dances. Our culture is constantly being added to and we have songs about leaving the Torres Strait to come to the mainland to find work. We have songs about working on the railways, but then we also have songs and dances about fishing for sardines, you know, about the different tides, the different winds um, that happen in the Torres Strait. Uh, so, it, you know, songs and dance are also a large part of carrying on story, even if it doesn't appear to be that way. But it's kind of really where a lot of our history is also held to is by learning those and understanding those, you learn about the history of what has happened before. Are there larger narratives that, that sort of cut across this that you can recall from your childhood, perhaps sort of narratives around loss and sadness and joy and, and that kind of thing? Or is it more specific kind of handing down factual events and that kind of thing? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's about the history that they're imparting, the culture that's being imparted. But then I think when I was growing up, look, when people say, oh, can you tell us like a Torres Strait Islander myth or legend in inverted commas? It's kind of funny because they're really quite gruesome, some of them. Like people are losing heads, people are getting killed. They're not really what you consider a bedtime story. But there's always these underlying stories within that story around whether that's you respect for your old people or something that happens to someone because they didn't listen to their old people. or yet. So there's always these kind of little learning moments in there too. It might not make sense to you when you're a child, but when you get older, you go, ah, that's what that old person was talking about. Or that's what that story, okay, okay. So there are these moments where I think it depends on where you are for how you understand that too. And that that is possibly part of the process. I've never really thought about it in great detail because for me, it's just, that's how it happens. But I think that's, you know, but I think that again, okay, I think that's also what sets us apart with storytelling too, is that when you hear a story, you go, okay, that's great. And then you might ask a question about it in a non-Indigenous context, or you might go, okay, that's great. And you move on with your life and you might not give it another thought. But I think sometimes for Indigenous people, just as a generalisation, there's a deeper thinking that goes into it sometimes that I think is where you're trying to make sense of it all. So you're saying that because of the way that stories are told, that you're holding those stories and examining them and, and turning them over in a bit more of a careful, considered way than perhaps a, a white person might approach the same story. Is that right? Yeah. And I think I think it's this, you know, and I think that's the difference. I think there's always this talk about the difference in communication between how Indigenous people communicate and how non-Indigenous people communicate and why sometimes there's that miscommunication between the two. And I think one of the things, because I spent a lot of time working on an Indigenous program and in, and working in Indigenous programming and talking to old people a lot of the time and talking to a lot of community. And I think the way that we tell stories is very different too, just when we're talking to each other, that there can be these tangents that go off, but they all come back and they make sense at the end. And sometimes when you've been in a non-Indigenous storytelling realm for too long, you start to wonder where it's going, but realise, no, no, this is the way that it is. And it has to go that way because that's how the story goes. And you've got to go on that journey. And then you have to kind of, in a way, decolonise when you're thinking about it, 
you've become so used to having it A, B, C, we go this linear line, there is no tangent, you know, because, because you know, when you're in the business of storytelling, I think as you'd know, Ben, going off on a tangent is not what you necessarily want. You want it to be quite linear, but sometimes you kind of, you know, there are parts where you actually need that tangent because it is about what happens at the end. It is connected, but the way that you get there is very different to just that linear line. As a white person, I should be in a bit less of a hurry to get to the end. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or maybe that when people, because you would hope that they come back (laughs) to the point that they were making, which again, every person for themselves when they're telling a story. But yeah, I think sometimes I think you have to just, I think that's part of it too, because, you know, when I was growing up, you didn't necessarily ask questions then and there. Your whole job was to sit and listen. And I think sometimes the listening part of that gets forgotten, but then the listening and understanding the listening gets lost too. There's two kind of two prongs, I think, to it that sometimes get lost in the non-Indigenous context. So I think the taking of time is important because you can't rush that. And I think it's always a good reminder, and it was always a good reminder for me of just how caught up I'd become in a Western style of storytelling that when I did spend two or three hours with someone, because it could take that long, and I might only use half an hour of that, I might only use an hour of that, that was all important because what you're also building is rapport, you're building trust, you're building a relationship, and that all takes time. So I think it's very much the Western context of storytelling is very take, 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 and there's not a lot of giving back or spending that time to get to know the other person so that you can have a genuine conversation and a genuine storytelling moment because you've taken the time for that. I think time becomes problematic because you're constantly feeling like you're on the clock. And yes, work to deadlines. I know how this goes, but sometimes you can't rush that. And if that's a two-hour interview, it's a two-hour interview. You know, if I was going out into the field and getting a story from someone, I would pretty much leave most of the day because I needed to leave the time for that. You know, I needed to respect that people might take a bit longer to tell their story. Some people might be quicker at telling their story because they'd done it a lot more. But yeah, you kind of, I think, have to, you do learn patience as well. You know, I think that's the importance of storytelling is that when you are told to listen, you're sitting there and you're learning the patience and you're also learning when is the time to ask questions and that you don't have to fill space with asking questions when there is silence, that sometimes sitting in that silence is important. Going back to your time at the ABC, so you said that you felt strongly about bringing uh, Indigenous perspective to, you know, a whole lot of sort of news and current issues that were happening, was it about that but also bringing some of these different kind of storytelling approaches, gifts that you had picked up through your childhood, that kind of thing, into into a kind of a non-Indigenous context? When I, when I started there, it was very much about learning probably what I didn't know. And, you, you know, you work on craft, craft is a big thing, you work on getting that story across in a simple way. I mean, you're working on breaking down really complex stories and making it simple for an audience who aren't necessarily in it all the time to know everything that's going on. And you've kind of got to break down that information and disseminate that information in a way that others can understand, comprehend. I think for me, 
a lot of it was learning about how they did things because there is definitely wherever you work, there's always a style, there's always a sort of a feel of the way that things are done. And I'd come from Indigenous radio at the time and a, uh, a little bit of time in um, the state government as well when I came into the ABC. And so there were things that I already knew how to do, but then there were other things sort of, I guess, around that storytelling that I was learning as well of how they kind of get into that. But I think yeah, I think one of the things that I was acutely aware of was the was words, why certain words were used to describe certain things. And I particularly, because when I was working on Triple J News, I was working with another Aboriginal um, journalist, Daniel Browning, and so acutely aware of how things were being described or words that would be used. And, I mean, we were working at a time too where we would be seeing stories coming through with inverted commas around so-called stolen generation when it had been proven that this was a policy of actively taking people away. And so that was still very much a thing of this stolen generation in inverted commas. And so we would always take the so-called out, take the commas away from the stock, and it would be stolen generation because we knew that it was true because there were many reports proving that it was true. And so there were things like that or when there was a protest on of automatically labelling an Aboriginal spokesperson as an activist, whether they called themselves that or not. So I think, you know, there's a lot of power in words, which sometimes when you're constantly in that machine of news, you don't realise what sometimes you're putting out there, that sometimes those words are not the words you should necessarily be using because it's already got a bias attached to it. It's got an inference attached to it. And if you're in the job of being impartial, of being unbiased, of being transparent, then you need to be aware of those words. And you need to be aware of when you put someone's race into a story. Why are you doing that? Is it important to the story? Is it not? So I think for me, it was more about the words in those moments that I was recognising are not the words that I would have used. And one thing I I also found is, you know, sometimes those words can exclude a community without non-Indigenous people really realising that those words are excluding. So when you start this us and them narrative in a script where you're constantly talking about their community, you've already isolated yourself by saying you're not a part of this story because you're not even trying to understand the perspective of the person. So you've already set it up that there is this barrier between you when you're telling that story. Their community, it's what they would have wanted. You know, they and them can sometimes and there can be very strong words and you might not even realise that you're setting up this already exclusionary storytelling behaviour in what you're using and the way that you're using that. You're listening to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. In this episode, a conversation with journalist and podcaster, Rihanna Patrick. If you like Storycraft, check out The Story, a new digital publication that dives headfirst into the world of stories, exploring their power and mechanics. Head to the hyphen story.com. 
media. Or go to the link in the show notes to check out pieces by some of Australia's leading storytellers, including Clementine Ford on the joy and challenges of writing nonfiction and Dorian Linsky on the British island that used the power of story to drive some of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates. The story is for anyone who tells stories, loves stories, or is just curious about how and why they work. You've been very open about the fact that your departure from the ABC, you didn't leave feeling really great about the ABC. Can you take us through sort of what the disappointment was and also maybe kind of talk about how things need to change or what kind of change you think there needs to be in the future to ensure that Indigenous people feel more safety in media organisations and there are just more black voices in the media in general? Yeah, look, for me it was it was a really weird time last year and I was triggered by Black Lives Matter, so I had trauma that was triggered from that. I'm not sure where it came from. It's not a history that's in my family necessarily and it just really set off a course of events that I don't think I could have predicted myself. And so I ended up taking three months um, leave without pay to kind of work through that because I started having anxiety moments before going on air to do my program. I um, was just feeling really flat. Um, I had kind of a panic moment at home one night and I realised that this wasn't a good thing. And then while I was off on three months leave without pay, everything that I had buried that I'd put up with in trying to do my job started to come to the surface. And that partly was triggered by the anniversary, um, a major anniversary of a program I had worked on previously where I'd worked on that program by myself. I was the presenter and producer for a number of years before I got a part-time producer and it was really hard going and it was quite isolating, that experience, even though I had support of my other Indigenous colleagues in other um, programming who also were kind of feeling the same things. And so it all kind of came to a to a head, I guess, and I realised I couldn't go back that where I was, I did feel culturally unsafe. I had shut off parts of myself and I'm a very proud Torres Strait Islander, but what I realised towards the end was I had stopped being who I was overtly, a lot of it, and I had hidden a lot of that away, which said to me of how unsafe I felt and how uncomfortable I felt even wearing my flag earrings in NAIDOC week to the office and just didn't realise how much of that I'd taken on board until it all started to come or how much I'd buried to forget on purpose as well that it sort of come up. And so I guess for me there is this conversation at the moment which is very much about the trauma that Indigenous journalists suffer while reporting on Indigenous stories from their communities and a lack of understanding and it's something that that our trauma that we get on the job is extremely different to working on a natural disaster or working as a foreign correspondent or the other things that you come up against because we're innately reporting on things that are our community, that we're responsible to, that we have ties to, whether it's our community or not, it's still our larger community and that takes a toll. So going to coronial inquest after coronial inquest after coronial inquest is having a 
direct effect on sometimes the journalists, the Indigenous journalists that are working on that. And so I think the larger body of work out of that is the recognising that the workplace can also be traumatic. And I don't think that's a surprise. I think there've been a lot of studies into racism in the workplace, the impact of racism on health even. But I think in the journalism realm, it's not something that is uh, something that is understood. I don't think black trauma is really understood by mainstream organisations extremely well. I don't think they really understand a lot of that. But I also don't think they understand that there's kind of these two parts to that, that you've got the trauma that you can suffer being an Indigenous journalist reporting on Indigenous issues versus the Indigenous journalists trying to do their job in a mainstream organisation and the things that you come up against in a workplace and the things that you have, you know, there are challenges that you have to push through every day just to do your job that other people, A, probably don't see, B, don't recognise or, you know, don't even have to deal with themselves. Can you give us an example of what that looks like? Um, I guess it's, you know, it's like sitting in an office and having hearing your colleagues talking about an Indigenous story and not actually acknowledging that you're there listening to that or that you could give some insight into that. These are the things that come up sometimes that you would hear in an office and be like, really? You're a a white male. You'll never know what it's like. Like, would you go on strike for eight years like Vincent Lingiari and the Gurindji mob for better conditions and for land rights? I don't think you – like, you just – the entitlement, the white privilege, these are the things that you're constantly having to deal with. And while it's, you know, it's easy enough to go, oh, well, you just need to get over it. It's actually not because it actually is directly relating to your being in that in a place which really is founded on exclusion. I mean, journalism was not founded for everybody to be able to do it. It was a certain class of people that could afford to do it at one point in time. The gatekeeping in that as well, you know, and we're still going through that where stories are not taken on the value of what they give. They're taken on the value of how many clicks it's going to get and whether the hits are going to trans are going to <laughs> convert to the website. And so it's yeah, and so you know, and sometimes it's hard to describe a lot of what happened because it, it is just hard to describe to someone who doesn't understand what it's like. I'm thinking about like a person from ABC management listening to this and because I've worked at ABC as well and I would I can imagine that they would say, well, you know, like we've put a huge amount of effort into ensuring that black and brown faces on the news and promoting these voices and putting the Indigenous name off the place on the 7.30 report and all that kind of thing. So, but what you're saying is that there has to be kind of more fundamental institutional change that sits underneath that before it's meaningful? Completely. Before you, I mean, what's the retention rate of that? Yeah, that's what you've got to ask yourself. If you've got brown and Indigenous people, brown, black and Indigenous people leaving your organisation and it looks like it's a revolving door, why is that happening? You know, start asking yourself a question about why. Is it because it's about the lack of opportunity? Is it because they got offered a better job? Mostly I would say no. (laughs) You know, I would say you actually need to listen to what your exiting staff are telling you. And I mean, I've had this conversation with various, with my various managers and made it extremely clear of what is not working. And I think if you can't, you know, anti-racism training is there for a reason. Cultural intelligence training is there for a reason. 
it's not as it's not a band-aid solution of just increasing your workforce to be more diverse because if that workplace is not ready for it that's more trauma directly that's going to impact on that on those staff coming into a workplace that is not ready for them you know so i think it's about doing the work because putting people in everywhere is not doing the work if you recognize that you have an issue, if you recognize there's a reason why people are not coming to your organization, if there's a reason why you're losing your diversity, these are big red flags. These are red flags that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people talk about. So when they see people exiting an organization, they think, mm, what's happening there? Because that's how we view it. And these are the questions that we ask ourselves before we even put in a job application. We will ring someone we know in those organizations and go, what's it like to really work there? Because we don't want, we want to know the truth. We don't want to, we don't want to come into something that's going to be worse than what we're in already. You know, so I think that's part of it that you have to recognize that it isn't just a fix. Like putting people in at various levels in various ways, it's performative. Like what is the genuine work that you are doing? And this is what has come out of Black Lives Matter is it's forcing a lot of organizations to look introspectively and to look really deep inside themselves about the work that they're actually doing. Because ticking a box and doing the work are two different things. So what is the work that people need to do? They have to educate themselves on who we are. They have to do the work when it comes to cultural intelligence training. And cultural intelligence training is not a one-off course. It's something that you should be doing on a regular basis. You should be reading books by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. You should be knowing the history of this country, the real history of this country, and really digging into that and really questioning that, questioning what you may have learnt you know, it's not for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or people from other communities of colour to do that work for you, you know, because the emotional labour of that is exhausting, let me tell you. It's exhausting. And there's a difference between asking for resources and then doing the work to read them when you're given them because you get asked all the time, but whether that person picks up what you've told them to read or whether they've gone out and are doing that work and educating themselves on that, two separate things. So, Rihanna, let's just talk about Indigenous X. Your departure from the ABC meant that you were able to join Australia's only 100% Indigenous-owned media organisation. Tell us more about what Indigenous X does and what you're doing there. So, Indigenous X grew out of a hashtag on Twitter. So, it was Indigenous X with an X at the end, which stood for Indigenous Excellence. And it came about at a time when a lot of what was in the media was really this deficit narrative. It didn't show our excellence. It didn't show the good work that our communities were doing or the work that people were doing that was excellence, Indigenous excellence, Indigenous positive stories. And so it kind of started from this hashtag and grew into this media company. We celebrate 10 years next year. And I guess it's a very different model in that it's an online digital media company. It does consultancy work, which pays for the content that we put up. So we do anti-racism training, media training, social media strategy work, a lot of different things that pay for then the content that we put out. I guess the thing that we've been the drivers of really in 10 years is creating an Indigenous commentary and opinion space, which didn't exist previous to that on a regular basis. And when The Guardian came into the Australian market, they uh wanted to partner with us to kind of start that and to bring something that meant that you would hear 
and see and be able to read Indigenous perspectives as well. And, and I think now we've got the conversation has more Indigenous academics giving points of view. We have people writing in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. There's so many different spaces that we are now where I think if you'd said 10 years ago, oh, there should be a regular Indigenous opinion piece somewhere in the mainstream media, it was it was rare. It was rare to see that. So I think we've really built that sector a lot and I guess the job that I'm doing at the moment is really about looking at how we can use audio, which is something that Indigenous X hasn't done. They've mainly been written um, and they've been article-based, a lot of that, and really about how we can sort of maybe innovate and change what we're doing in that space. But I've also just released their first series, well, their first podcast series called Black Nation, which is named after an Indigenous newspaper that existed in Brisbane from 1982 to 1985, and it was created by uncle the late uncle ross watson as a way of communicating to community about the 1982 commonwealth games protests and it would tell everything from sporting news to kids puzzles to poetry to opinion pieces to social justice issues it covered the gamut of whatever was happening as well as taking photos of community as well and so I guess the conversation that I've tried to bring to Black Nation, the podcast, is very much around the conversations you might not realise are happening in the Indigenous community or in spaces that I don't work, for instance, that other people are doing this work in. So you've made the really good point in this conversation around the need for uh, non-Indigenous Australians to do the work for someone like me, you know, who wants to hear a different story about Indigenous Australia, a, a Indigenous-led telling of that story, what are the things that people should be listening to, watching, reading? Indigenousx.com.au. Oh, my gosh, Lies, Damned Lies by Claire Coleman, Claire G. Coleman, which just came out. It actually looks at the mythology around Australian history, our obsession with Cook, getting to the truth. <laughs> um, it's, it's, re- it's an amazing book, I would say that for sure. I would say obviously listen to Speaking Out and Away on ABC, watch NITV and and maybe follow Dreaming Now on Instagram. So and obviously Indigenous X's Twitter too, because our rotational account where you get to meet a different Indigenous person each week. I think there has been a shift. And I think there's been a shift in non-Indigenous people wanting to read the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and really wanting to find how they can do that work by reading articles and um, and finding what they need. And, you know, and I think that's something when I started oh, a long time ago, particularly in mainstream, I don't think we saw that necessarily. I think it's been really interesting to see that, sh- that swing and it's been quite a big swing in such a short amount of time too that probably in the last three to five years, there's really just been this appetite for wanting to learn and wanting to find things that can that people can support in a more meaningful way and, yeah, and ways of, I guess, making your click count because I think, I think consumers don't realise that they have the power of what they watch, what they press play on, what they tune into, what they read and then what links they click on and that there's power that comes with that and when you use, use that power you should use that power and make it count. So really think about what you're clicking on, what you're consuming and what you'd like to see more of. 
That was Rihanna Patrick, journalist and head of audio and podcasts at Indigenous X. This is episode four of a six-part season of Storycraft. If you like what you heard, why not subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could spread the word about Storycraft. Tell your friends, colleagues, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Doing this helps more people find the show. Storycraft is produced by Dashiell Lawrence of Retrospect and presented by me, Ben Hart. Thank you.